This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what do we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. This week, Andy Neal joins Nate to talk about Rod Stewart and the Faces, the arena, and even a stadium-packing classic rock band that struggled to compete with its lead singer's solo career. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Today's guest is Andy Neal, author of Had Me a Real Good Time. Faces, before, during, and after. Andy, welcome to the show. Hi, Nate. Nice to be on the show. And happy to have you here. And and uh, I'm tempted to work Rod Stewart into the title of the book, but you managed to avoid that. How did the publishers let that ha- happen? Well, I think it was pretty clear from the you know the get go that uh, it wasn't strictly a book just on Rod. It it covered all the guys in the band, and um, it was a sort of a personal. Um, I wouldn't say a bugbear, but just certainly something that I felt need to be clarified, that it wasn't just another book on Rod Stewart, because 
most of the biographies on Rod, you know, the faces are covered in, say, a chapter, and then it moves on to all his marriages and, uh, you know, albums of the Great American Songbook, etc., etc. Whereas this was a story that was very definite about five, even more than five, six individuals, you know, b- between sort of, uh, you know, six years. So I felt it had to be specifically, you know, the faces rather than just Rod and the faces. Much appreciated, and this is a really valuable contribution to scholarship. And and one thing that's fascinating about the faces to me as a Gen Xer that that came up after they had passed is they were huge for a brief time in the early seventies, but they kind of were overshadowed by Rod Stewart even during their career and especially afterwards. Very unusual for one of the great English stadium filling rock bands. Well, that's right. I mean, it, it was one of those sort of. Uh forces of nature, really. I don't think Rod or, or anybody could foresee how big Rod was going to become. Um, it was just one of those freak things. I mean, Rod, the reason why the faces got so successful in America um, quite quickly is because Rod already had a reputation um, from his time touring America with the Jeff Beck group and also from his first couple of solo albums. So he already sort of had a you know, like a sort of a, a, a you know, the, the way it had already been paid for him becoming as successful as he did. But of course, it was 1971, and uh, on the back of all that touring, and then you know, releasing an album like Every Picture Tells a Story, it just suddenly took on a life of its own. And unfortunately, it, it, it while it was great on the one hand, you know, the faces got more recognition, they became more successful. It also sowed the seeds for their destruction. And and as you say, the band only really lasted, you know, for a brief time. And that sort of like, you know, they formed in 69, but I'd say from sort of 71 to 75 was when they were really one of the biggest American touring attractions. And um, of course, you know, once Ronnie Wood went to the Stones and all that, you know, the, the game was up. And of course, Ronnie suddenly became identified as a Rolling Stone and Rod became identified as a solo artist. And the band, in in some ways, took a back seat to those two sort of giant career moves that the, the two guys made. And let's backtrack a little bit and, and tell our listeners uh, kind of the, the origins of the faces and their and their formation out of two bands. You mentioned the Jeff Beck group, which featured Ron Wood, uh, Ronnie Wood on bass and Rod Stewart on vocals with Jeff Beck. But the, yeah. the, the rest of the band, the other three fifths of the band, came out of a massive English group of the 60s called the Small Faces. That's right, yeah. Well, it was um, it, it was a funny thing because in Britain in the 60s, you know, the small faces were considered like a sort of a, a, a when I say like a monkeys type band, there was, they, they weren't manufactured, but they were very much appealing to like young girls, even though Steve Marriott had a great voice. They, they were considered a sort of a, a pop group, if you like, rather than a band um, that had a bit more credibility, like, I don't know, a Yardbirds or a, or, or a Who and things, you know, they were very much marketed as a sort of a pinup group, which was a bit unfair, really, because I'm sure anyone who listens to their music will see that you know it was wasn't as far from disposable. It it, it's, it still has a lot of durability. So in England, you know, the, the small faces were very much cast in that mould, whereas they weren't really known in America. So. Um, by the time that the Small Faces, when Steve Marriott left the Small Faces to go off and form Humble Pie with uh, the guitarist Peter Frampton, the other three guys, Ronnie Lane, Ian McLagan and Kenny Jones, 
you know, were wondering what they were going to do. In the meantime, it's sort of like the reverse of the coin. The Jeff Beck Group was sort of known in England, but not that well known because Jeff Beck had made his name as a guitar player extraordinaire in the Yardbirds. And, you know, they had broken through in America and had influenced many groups. And and Beck became a sort of a guitar hero in America. And on the back of that, the Jeff Beck Group broke through in the States with the album Truth and just lots of touring. But it, by the same time, they were sort of profit. Jeff Beck was like a prophet without honor in, in England. So you sort of had the small faces unknown in America, apart from like a, a minor hit they had with Ichiku Park. And then you had the Jeff Beck group sort of like overlooked in Britain, but were quite well known in America. So it's curious when the faces actually did get together in 1969 that you had this sort of like yin yang thing happening where, you know, some of the guys were known in America, but unknown in Britain and vice versa, you know. And in the book, you go into some detail. What prevented the small faces from touring the States when they had a hit here? Well, I think it was poor management. It was poor management. And I think also um, in those days, America, it was very difficult. It was starting to loosen up around about 1967, 68. But in the mid-60s, a lot of British bands couldn't get visas uh, to either appear on television or make personal appearances. And Small Faces' early records were released in America, and they got a little bit of radio play, but they weren't really big hits. It took until 67 with Ichiku Park, uh, which was a top 20 hit on Billboard. But just as things were sort of starting to be put into motion to get them um, over to America to tour, uh, Ian McLagan, or Mac as he was known to everybody, the, the keyboard player, uh, was busted for drugs. Um, and in those days, if you got a drug bust, a drug conviction, uh, you were automatically uh, not granted it. You, c- you couldn't enter America for at least a year. So, you know, the band weren't prepared to tour without him, obviously. And, um, of course, if you go forward from a year on from when he was busted, the, you know, that's when Marriott was, the band were in disarray because Steve Marriott was, uh, you know, hatching plans to go off and form his own band. So it, it never really happened. Bad and luck, what, really. And, and one thing that sort of fascinated me about this period that I learned from the book is the big difference in the rock or pop music scene in England and, and the rock scene in America. Can you give sort of a quick summary? Like what was the state of affairs in the two countries around 69, 70? I'll try and do it as quick one because I could, I could be here all day because it's quite complicated, but basically uh, England, and it's still very much the case. uh, England is very sort of um, trend conscious and, you know, it's a lot more fickle than America, where it's like, you know, a band like the Small Faces could be Flavor of the Month and, you know, 1965, they're the new boys in town and they're getting hit records. But then, you know, if they have one record that misses or another band comes up that's sort of like, you know, considered more popular or better or for whatever, you know, arbitrary reason, you know, that, that band runs a, a, a serious risk of being forgotten about, you know, or at least not, you know, earning as much or having as much of a career as they had 18 months before. Whereas in America, it just, America seems to be much more uh, 
based upon, I, I, you know, just a sort of a career longevity is not frowned upon. So if a band comes over to America and and does things the hard way, you know, is prepared to tour and slog it out and, and play, you know, fourth on the bill to, to, to bands and live in the back of a van and just go out and do it, then I, I think that's rewarded more. And that's what tended to, was tending to happen to a lot of British bands in the late 60s. They were sort of, you know, the, the big bands like the Beatles and the Stones didn't really enter the equation because they were sort of like, you know, almost like a force apart from the next level of bands down. The, the, you know, the, they were considered like, you know, leaders in their field. And so they would put a record out and would virtually be a hit straight away. But the, these other bands like the Small Faces, even the Kinks and the Who, um, they found the going tough when we get to about 67 in this country because they were so used to having hit singles and being you know like a popular group and then suddenly like when a new act came along they they were still sort of they still had an audience but they weren't guaranteed the same level of success so that's when they started to look over to america you know that if we're going to survive or you know if there's any any sort of like um you know, survival in this, then, you know, we've really got to look upon breaking America. So that's when you look at the scene in the late 60s in America, you see all those British bands, Pink Floyd, Traffic, uh, John Mayall, you know, Jeff Beck group, they all come to America. And America sort of, in many ways, if you if you were good, you were welcomed with open arms. I mean, you've only to look at how big Cream and Hendrix were compared to, you know, I mean, they were big in Britain, but much bigger in the States, you know. And so how did the, the two bands we've we've talked about how the small faces fell apart because Steve Marriott jumped ship to form Humble Pie and yeah. then the Jeff Beck group falls apart. I mean that was a band that was barely together when they were together. You know, you, you describe right. it. I mean the, the the Beck group was very much a victim of, you know, poor management and it it Jeff Beck was a guitar player first and foremost. He wasn't really a band leader. I mean He'd left the Yardbirds, and the Yardbirds manager at the time um, decided, like, let's let's build, a, 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 you know, a, a new group around this guitar player. And so, you know, Jeff went out looking for, you know, what he considered to be the best musician. You know, he knew he knew of Ronnie Wood and Rod Stewart from his time in the Yardbirds, and Rod Rod Stewart brought along Mickey Waller because Mickey Waller, the drummer, had played with Rod in one of his previous groups. So. You know, they, they, as as musicians, you know, they they were very good uh, live, but they were just badly managed, and they were they were actually um, being looked after by Peter Grant, who went on to um, manage uh, Led Zeppelin. And so, when he went to America with the Jeff Beck Group, he saw how the rock market was opened up in a way which venues to play like all these new venues that had opened up in america like the fillmore in new york and san francisco and the boston tea party in boston the electric factory in philadelphia and places like that and it, it was basically the blueprint for how the, the business was run but unfortunately the jeff Bick's group's timing was a little bit out because they, they didn't really have strong management uh, jeff was a pretty um moody character and you know there was a lot of band members that came and went and i just think that you know while they were making ground in america and they were selling out concerts that there just wasn't anybody sort of nobody sort of had a career strategy to keep it going so you know when 
Rod, Ronnie Wood was fired in 1969, you know, Rod felt, well, if my best mate's gone, I'm probably going to be next. So, you know, when he was looking further afield, you know, to sort of look beyond the Jeff Beck group and see what his options were. So really, for what was on paper, a fantastic group. Unfortunately, it didn't really, um, it, it, it almost had a self, self-destruct mechanism built in. And let's hear a little bit of the faces, and then I'm, I'll, I'll ask you to tell me about their formation. And this is the faces doing a song that Rod Stewart actually did first on his uh, second solo album. This is the faces doing You're My Girl. I don't want to discuss it. And that was the faces taking a stab at You're My Girl, which was a song Rod Stewart had covered on uh, his second album. And and tell us a little bit about how how does this band come together with a contract with Warner Brothers? Meanwhile, their lead singer has a contract with Mercury. Well, it's quite a complicated situation. And of course, it went on to have um, ramifications later on when Rod became very successful. But what had happened was the Warner Brothers in England had just been set up. Um, um, the, the American office had commissioned two guys in Ralphini and Martin Wyatt, sorry, to um, set up the UK office of Warner's and to go out and sign bands. And they'd signed a band called Family, and they also signed the the, the Peter Green version of Fleetwood Mac uh, when they were sort of between record labels. And um, they were looking at the um, the faces were sort of people, you know, they'd started to tout around a demo tape, and they'd been to Apple, the Beatles label, and they'd been to Track, the Who's label. And then um, eventually uh, word got reached the ears of Ian Ralphini at, at Warner's, and so they were interested in signing them. But um, I've, I've forgotten his name, Joe, the head Joe of Warner Smith. Brothers in America. Yeah. Joe Smith. He, yeah, it's the guy. Yeah, sorry, just had a mind blip there. He was very much interested in signing them, but the proviso was he would only sign them if Rod was the singer, because he'd heard the demos with Rod singing, and he knew how much he, how great he was with, with, um, with Jeff Beck. So basically, Warner Brothers got in touch with, in this country, Phonogram was Mercury in America. And a deal was made whereby Rod could sing. They gave Rod permission to sing on the records and be a member of the band on the proviso that he still promoted his solo records and fulfilled his contract, you know. And uh, it's almost unheard of now, but I guess they thought that Rod would never be as successful as he went on to be. And um, for the first couple of years, it sort of worked well because, you know, Rod could promote his solo albums and keep Mercury happy when he was playing Faces gigs. And at the same time, people would come to see Rod Stewart, um, who they heard on the record, and at the same time, they would get the Faces. Uh, and Rod had the best band he could hope for, you know, helping him promote the record. So it sort of worked... It was an uneasy alliance, and it worked worked pretty well for the 
first couple of years, but of course it all skyrocketed and things sort of rapidly fell apart once Rod became popular because obviously Rod's records were outselling the Faces albums two to one, probably more actually. And, um, you know, that, that caused dissension. And this is something that, for their part, Ronnie Lane and Ian McLuggan had seen coming. They were when Ronnie Wood started courting them and jamming with them. They were excited about him, but they were very leery to bring in Rod Stewart. How did that actually happen? Who who actually made the invite to Rod to join the Faces? Well, the person who made the invite to Rod to join the Faces was actually Kenny Kenny Jones, a drummer, who was sort of. You know, the faces were sort of quite a bunch of characters, and Ronnie Lane and Ian McLagan were quite sort of nice guys, but they could also be very volatile. And, and I think they felt that when Steve Marriott, who was sort of like the focal point of the faces, oh, sorry, of the small faces, you know, had left, that they were determined that, right, we're not going to get another prima donna or, you know, the, the, the center, the, the, somebody who's sort of like the center of attention. We just want this sort of like, you know, very egalitarian band where everybody's on an equal footing and uh, no one's getting an extra share of attention. But um, as Kenny says himself, um, he would be at the rehearsals and each of them would take a turn singing lead, lead vocals. Ronnie Wood sang lead, uh, Max sang lead, and Ronnie Lane, who's got a great voice, but for a certain type of a certain type of material, they all each had turns at singing. But Rod at that stage was just sort of hanging out, waiting to go to the pub with the others, just hanging out with his mate uh, Woody, Ronnie Wood. But then when, you know, they sort of, Kenny invited them to sort of step in and sing, you know, it was obvious that that was the answer. They had a world-class singer and frontman. But when he mentioned it to um, his guys in the, the, the ex-small faces, uh, Ronnie Lane and Ian McLagan, he was shouted down initially because it was just like, no, you know, we're just history's going to repeat itself. This guy's going to get all the attention. His ego's going to go out of control, and we're going to be left high and dry again. And in many ways, it, that that was a self-fulfilling prophecy. But at the same time, I think they needed somebody like Rod to lift them a cut above the ordinary. Otherwise, I think they would have just like gone their separate ways. I, I don't know if Ronnie Lane and, and Mac would have formed a band with somebody or, or, or Kenny would have drummed with somebody else, but it just needed a Rod-like figure to make them, you know, something special. And it was also the record labels that made them name themselves Faces. Initially, their first album was released released as the small faces That's and right, yeah tell us about that what was the thinking there well i think that was more from the american side of warner brothers because the small faces had a name from ichiku park people knew them uh from that and i think from what i can understand how it worked was they agreed to do that for the first album because because they were signing because the, the, the deal was very much being driven by American Warners. They agreed to do that um, just so people would sort of connect that you know the, the bands were connected in a way. But it, it didn't last for long, and and the band made sure it didn't last for long because obviously, you know, they weren't the Small Faces anymore because Steve Marriott had gone, and um, it 
it needed to be, you know, it needed to be clear that this was a new band with a new name. And even in America, they were they were being billed as the faces featuring Rod Stewart at, at shows and things, which didn't go down well. But in, in England, they were much more recognised as faces. You know, just like not the faces, but just faces. You know, everyone called them the faces, of course. But if you look on the posters, if you look on the record labels, they're just billed as faces. You know, so it was quite. It's just another sort of ingredient of a confusing ingredient of, of their story but I think it was just mainly to sort of like it was more like a, a an identification thing to start with it didn't last very long and when they launched the band they've got a little bit of a foothold in America like you say the small faces had had a hit and Warner Brothers is behind them Rod Stewart was known from his tours with the Jeff Beck group which had been pretty exciting and successful in the states in 68 69 but in England they're cold as dead fish that's right. Well, again, it's a hangover from that thing I was telling you about how England was very much looking at new, always looking ahead, always looking at what was the next thing around the corner. So for a band to suddenly spring up, made up of three guys who used to be in a pop group called The Small Faces, and two relative unknowns, you know, Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood. I mean, British audiences knew Rod Stewart from his time as Rod the Mod in the 60s when he was playing with uh, a singer called Long John Baldry and Julie Driscoll and in a band called Steam Packet, which featured Brian Auger. It was almost like a, the first supergroup, if you like, of, of different musicians. So people knew who he was, but he'd never had a, a, a big hit Um and and Ronnie Wood had just played with a local a local band from West London called the Birds B I R D S not to be confused with the American Birds and um, so they were sort of relatively unknown and also the other thing that that's that's important to note in again I England was very fashion conscious and trend conscious so the the, the trend in the late sixties early seventies particularly in the early seventies was for sort of progressive rock, you know, guys playing long solos, sort of, you know, heads down, barely acknowledging the crowd, almost playing for themselves in a way. And here was this band of sort of like five ex-mobs, Londoners, you know, sort of likely lads who enjoyed a drink, enjoyed a good time, and wanted the audience to have a good time. So that was sort of considered quite unhip, if you can believe it. You know, it, in America, you know, that... It, it was lapped up, you know, audiences wanted to be entertained and, you know, they, they joined in the party spirit. But initially in Britain, here were these guys who were sort of like treating it, they, they, they took it seriously, but they they were quite lighthearted. And that was sort of swimming against the tide of what was considered cool in Britain at the time. You know, you had bands like Pink Floyd and Uriah Heep and, you know, Coliseum and all these sort of bands, you know, um, the Groundhogs and people like that, who were sort of like um, hippie bands, if you, if you I guess is another way of calling calling it like that or, or, or but they were mainly part of the sort of progressive rock movement which the faces were definitely against i mean their heroes were people like you know booker t and the mgs and the meters and that they were like a soul band you know soul band playing rock and roll so their approach was totally different and so they were very much at odds with what was considered um trendy in britain in sort of 1969 70 71 it was only really when word came back from how well they were doing in America and of course Rod's big breakthrough with Maggie May in 71 that 
suddenly the tide turned in their favor and they were successful in, on both Britain and America. And let's hear another song. This is this is the Faces version of Paul McCartney's Maybe I'm Amazed, which features Ronnie Lane singing the first verse before Rod Stewart comes in. The Faces doing Paul McCartney's Maybe I'm Amazed. Talk about that a little bit and, and the way The Faces sourced their material. They they had two or three strong songwriters in the band, and yet they did almost as many covers, or at least as many of their high-profile songs were covers as originals. Well, I think um, it was because, as you say, there were three different styles of songwriters in the band, and Ronnie Lane, it's, it's, it's an ironic thing, really, because Ronnie Lane's sort of more folkier style was sort of more at odds with what the faces were portrayed as a sort of a loud, ballsy rock and roll band, whereas Ronnie's stuff was a bit more introspective and quieter. But yet Rod had, had actually come from a folk background. You know, he loved people like... Daryl Adams and, uh, you know, Pete Seeger and, and, and the folk thing from the sort of early 60s. So there was a similarity there. But I think they felt that as, as a live band, they, their, their strengths were sort of, it was a bit like Joe Cocker in the Grease Band at the time. You know, Joe Cocker, if you look at his first few albums, they're mainly all like cover, ver you know, there's things like the Beatles with Little Help My Friends and Leon Russell's Delta Lady and things like that. You know, the faces were similar to that, I think. They, they would get, they would find a common ground on songs that they all liked and that they would cover and that would sort of suit Rod's um, style, you know, his range and that. So as well as Major of Maze, you know, they were in America when Paul McCartney's first solo album came out and they bought it and that was obviously the standout track on it. So they thought they could adapt that to their style. Similarly, um, the Rolling Stones' Get Your Yaya's out, um, the live album came out when they were on tour. They loved the Stones' version of Robert Johnson's Love and Vain. So they thought, well, that's another one because Ronnie liked to play um, slide guitar. So it was a perfect sort of showcase for him. And um, and the, the the track you played earlier, um, I can Tina Turner's "You're My Girl." Again, that was a track that suited Rod and it suited the band. They could get into a groove, and frequently that song would be eight to ten minutes long because they would just get into a a groove playing, you know. So, I, I, but sort of answering your question about why they didn't do more of their own material with if they had that thing, I think there was just this. It was felt that somehow, because it was a very sort of delicate alliance, you know, for reasons we discussed about Mac and and Ronnie Lane being unsure about Rod and and, and things, like that, I think they felt. I think it was felt that it was a easier to sort of somehow because the faces were very much more a live band than a studio band. They really came to life on stage and songs like this that the audience were sort of familiar with being done by this sort of powerhouse rock and roll band. It just seemed to hit the spot. So think more of their own material. I mean, they, be, they did be, go on to put some great stuff on their albums, but it was just, they sort of became renowned for interpreting other people's songs 
um, and turning them into sort of their own, which I, they certainly did with Maybe I'm Amazed. And talk a little bit about the difference in the way Rod produced his solo albums versus the way the Faces did their albums. I mean, looking back and and based on the public response, you would have thought that more time would have been spent on Rod's albums. But actually, you know, reading the book, it's pretty clear Rod spent most of his time working with the Faces and whipped his albums out in kind of a rush. Well, again, um, it comes down to the, the, the sort of like the differing views of the of the band members you know, the, the, and it was always difficult to sort of get the band to agree on how how you know a, a track should sound or i mean in many cases they, they would actually record stuff and then re-record it and it just seemed to be a problem that they had where there was always a sort of a they, they tried to find a common ground and and sometimes it would and often they were touring a lot too, because at, at that point the band were when they first formed they were they were deep in debt from the, the debts that had been like left over from the small faces, and so they're often on the road in America and and you know usually some people can write on the road and you know at the end of a tour they've got enough material for uh, you know to record an album. It seems to me from what I can see that the faces just spent most of the time partying down. And when it came time to record, it was sort of like a head scratching time because they couldn't seem to, you know, think, right, well, let's do this or let's do this song this way or what have you. Whereas Rod, um, who has seemed to be much more practical and was very aware that, you know, he, he, Rod was always very clever. He knew how much money that was being spent on the records and things like that. So he was, in many ways, very thrifty on, on how he approached the record. He'd, he'd mapped it out in his head. You know, he knew the songs he was going to do. He'd more or less rehearsed them. Sometimes, you know, the faces had even done them live, you know, and and Rod was very much... You know, he liked to. He went for feel. If the feel of the song was good, and uh, you know that that was all that mattered. In fact, if you listen to some of the tracks on Rod's albums, you'll hear mistakes. You know, like not not glaring errors, but just little mistakes that have been left in because the feel of the song was much more important than like you know going for take fifty. You know, if he got it in two takes, he was happy. He was almost a bit like Dylan, Bob Dylan, in that respect. So, Rod was very much aware of like getting it down and getting it out and ultimately spending less time in the studio because he was, you know, in many ways he was, he he would be paying for it. Whereas the faces on Warner's dime were just spending so much time and they were coming into the studio at odd times of the day and night and mainly in the early hours of the morning. And they were so far gone that night, you know, usually nothing would result from the session. So it, they were really, they were, they were almost like a difficult childbirth. So the faces albums, you know, they, they spanned many, many weeks and it wasn't really until Glenn Johns came in for their third album, uh, not as good as a wink that some discipline was, you know, he was able to sort of corral their ideas a bit more and get performances out of them. And, and I think that's why that album is sort of generally regarded as their best album. 
And it produced a hit single with Stay With Me, but it also came on the heels of Rod's immense breakthrough with his third solo album, Every Picture Tells a Story, which, of course, featured Maggie May. Talk a little bit about just how big they were in the States, because that was one thing that I really didn't realize until I read the book. I mean, I knew they were legendary, but I didn't realize that they were at that Who and Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones stadium filling uh, level. Oh, yes. Yeah, very much so. From Certainly after... Every picture tells a story. And even prior to that, I mean, I think in that year alone, they did something like three American tours. And these were quite long, long American tours. And each time they went back, you know, they were playing bigger places for more money. And certainly the tour at the end of 1971, uh, that was the tour where, you know, Rod was basically everywhere you turned, you turned the radio on. Maggie May was coming out of the radio. It was number one on the singles charts in America and Britain at the same time. And the album, Every Picture Tells a Story, was number one in America and Britain. So I, I think I, I could be wrong, but I, I think that is still a record for a recording artist to be number one in both the singles and album charts simultaneously in both countries. So you can imagine how huge Rod was and and on the back of that you know the faces were just playing these bigger bigger arenas and um yeah that was 71 72 right through to when they disbanded in 75 they were up they were in the top five draw you know draws of um rock acts up there with as you say zeppelin and the who and the stones um and uh yeah they they were just um one of the biggest touring rock acts uh, in the seventies, without a shadow of doubt. And in the in the book, you you mention several times their glamorous look, and and you know they start out cold in England, but then they break through by seventy one and are huge. Were they seen as part of the glam movement alongside T Rex and David Bowie and and other bands, or were were they outside of that? They were outside of that. Although they were very much, um, you know, they, they knew all those guys. I mean, you know, Rod and Ronnie Wood and the Small Faces knew Mark Bolan and um, David Bowie from, you know, going back to the 60s, you know, when they were all in, in bands sort of playing the same sort of venues. But starting with sort of Mark Bolan and um, David Bowie and, and bands like Slade and that, they were very much seen as the sort of the, the, the forefront of the of the glam movement that the faces were sort of a bit different I think rod they became glamorous and they were always sort of dressed from all the sort of trendy boutiques that were hip at the time like uh, Alcazura and um, granny takes a trip which was down in Chelsea and the King's Road so they were sort of dressed they dressed up but they didn't sort of put glitter on their faces and uh, you know rod rod I guess did that a bit later but it they were certainly because the, the glam movement especially was in this country was seen as sort of like a singles thing you know Mark Boland had like I think it was four number one singles and 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 David Bowie you know like who came in like about a year later initially had a lot of success as a singles act you know as well as albums like Ziggy Stardust so the, the glam thing was almost seen also sort of like a younger thing um, appealing to a younger audience, sort of like, you know, you know, 13, 14 year old, 16, up to 16, maybe. Whereas the faces sort of appealed to, they did appeal to that. I mean, girls like Rod, obviously, and, you know, they were good looking 
guys in the band, but uh, I think they were more appealing to their brothers, their older brothers, the, the guys who liked to sort of like wish they could, you know, be Rod Stewart and play football and drink beer and pull nice, nice girls. You know, that was that was the thing. So it was a sort of a different. They they weren't really appe- appealing to the glam market. They weren't considered part of it. Although people who bought Mark Boland records also bought Faces records, so it it wasn't that much of a of a gulf between them. And let's hear another song. This is uh, the Faces version of "I Know I'm Losing You" by The Temptations, and this is a song that the Faces actually recorded, but it went out on a Rod Stewart solo album. And we'll talk about the tension that things like that created after this song. This is the Faces. I know I'm losing you. Faces covering the Temptations, and how did a volatile character like Ronnie Lane react to songs that he had worked on with Rod Stewart, ending up on Rod Stewart albums? Well, it's difficult to say because I think in most cases, if it was a song that ended up on Rod's album and the band played on it, it was generally agreed. Rod, Rod certainly wouldn't get the band to record a song and then behind their back stick it on his album. It would have been known, it would have been a sort of a transparent move before it happened. But I think what annoyed, certainly annoyed um, Ian McLagan and, and, and Kenny Jones was that it was felt that Rod was sort of hiving off the best of his material for his own albums and the Faces albums were suffering for it as a result. Um, I mean, there's a story that circulated, and I'm, you know, again, sort of from what I've researched and looked into the sort of the personalities of what made up the band, there's a story that still prevails that a song of Rod Stewart's on his uh, Every Picture Tells a Story album called Mandolin Wind was actually a Ronnie Lane song, and, and it certainly has the hallmarks of a Ronnie Lane song. You know, it's a very folky track with, you know, uh, acoustic and mandolin and uh, the, the songwriting style is, is is very much like his. And, but I don't, I'm not convinced that Rob took the song and said thanks very much and stuck it on his album and, and didn't give Ronnie Lane a credit. I, I just think that, um, Again, it's just a shame that their their styles couldn't be reconciled because when you actually look at um, Rod's influences and Ronnie Lane's influences and the, the, the type of music that Ronnie Lane recorded and went on to record after he left the Faces, there is a similarity there, but it just never seemed to... Um, it just I don't know if it was felt that it just wasn't right for a, a rock and roll band like the Faces. It needed to be more up-tempo. Um, and, um, it, you know, Rod, I think, tried to keep both camps happy by putting Faces performances on his albums. So, you know, it was almost like to say, okay, yeah, I've got a solo career and I'm doing very well, but, you know, I'm still just one of the lads in the Faces, you know, they're, they're my first, you know, lo- loyalty. 
But, you know, you could only do that for so long because inevitably people start whispering in people's ears, oh, he's getting more attention than, you know, you should be up there as well and this is happening and that's happening. And, of course, it just sows the seeds of dissension and that's what was happening. And and by the time the Faces are doing their fourth album, Ooh La La, which many people, including you, consider to be their best, the Rod Stewart is so frustrated with their slow pace of work that that he actually lets them basically record the backing tracks before he comes along. And and this is the point where Rod becomes less sympathetic. I mean, you you document him uh, basically shitting on a song like Gula La that Ronnie Lane had written and 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 talking it down and refusing to sing on it and making him change keys and then still not singing. Mm. You know, and then decades later, he comes back and acknowledges it as a great song, which it is. You know, it's featured in the Rushmore soundtrack and one of the best known songs of the faces at this point. But that had to have played a role in the schism with Ronnie Lane. Oh, certainly. I mean, Rod's a, a character who's very much, um, he, he, he pretty much tells it how he sees it. And that notorious interview that you mentioned where Rod sort of was quite damning about um, the Ooh La La album was shortly after the album was released and a few reviewers had picked up on the fact that, you know, the faces still seem to be having problems and sort of transferring that, uh, you know, that sort of energy that they had on stage and, and the, um, you know, just basically making a cohesive album. I mean, a lot of people, if you, if you actually time that Ooh La La album, if you put the CD in, I think it only clocks in at about 30 minutes or something, so it's a very brief album, and, and there's one track sort of like an instru- a throwaway instrumental. Um, so I think Rod was feeling frustrated at, at the, as you say, the lack of progress, the lack of discipline, um, but certainly I think he immediately regretted what he said, because he knew it would cause ructions, which it did. But I think by that point, the, the the writing was on the wall anyway, because Ronnie Lane had actually um, met this this new lady, which uh, Kate, who became his second wife, and he'd sort of entered this um, rich songwriting scene, and he's writing a lot of material, stuff that would sort of end up on his first solo album. And again, he felt that it was just um, not sort of um it wasn't the sort of material that he could bring to the band and even if he did bring it to the band rod was recognized as the lead singer of the band so inevitably he wouldn't be singing his own his own songs and the songs would probably be changed not the way you know the songwriter envisaged them so there was that problem there was the problem with rod getting you know the lion's share of attention at the expense of the other band members and so it was an intractable situation, really. I just think that, and probably the Ooh La La incident was probably the icing on the cake that uh, basically led to um, Ronnie Lane leaving. But it, it wouldn't have, I couldn't have seen it lasting anyway, even if Rod hadn't have said that, because Rod was getting frustrated at the, the you know, basically the, the lack of discipline and the carousing in the studio, and as was Glenn Johns and and even Kenny Jones, you know, who sort of Kenny had a foot in both camps. He, he he didn't take sides, but you know they would turn up for a session booked for eight o'clock, and they'd be the only ones there. And then at two in the morning, Ronnie Wood and Ronnie Lane and Mac would show up, and they'd be out of their heads, and you know it would be more messing about. There's a track on. Um, the Faces Anthology, which was released as a little flexi-disc called Dishevelment Blues, which is this sort of 
really bad out of tune jam, very drunken late night jam by the band in the studio and that really gives you a flavor of what was sort of a face a session was like then you know it was it was a party a party first and then the band oh yeah that's right we're here to record you know so you know you could see rod getting frustrated um but uh, i just think that the situation between the two writers and the fact that rod ronnie had all these songs he'd met this new woman had a profound effect on him and um, I think, you know, the, the, it was time for him to, to move on. And and he does leave the band in late 73, and they bring in uh, the former free bassist, Tetsu Yamauchi, who, yeah. uh, and they basically, they live along for another couple tours, and they put out some singles, but they never put another album out. No, that's right. Well, I mean, again, I think the situation with Ooh La La had proven that, like, for them to actually sort of, get it together and actually do a Faces album was, it was proving, um, it just, I just think they almost gave up in a way. I mean, they were stockpiling tracks that were either like towards the end, they actually did do a series of sessions that were sort of considered for a fifth Faces studio album, which never happened. But also, you know, like Rod was, I mean, again, I think it was pretty obvious that like by that point that the band were, a stage animal. They toured, they played gigs. That was where the money was. Faces albums weren't selling that well. They certainly didn't sell as well as Rod's albums. So there might have been an unspoken understanding that like, okay, well, if we go into the studio, we'll knock something together, but it's more likely to come out as a single or it may be just, we'll just put it on the shelf and see if it'll fit on an album. But certainly after Ronnie Lane left, that that was the thinking. It's like, let's just... um, it's just tour, you know. Let's let, let's um, do what we're good at. And and that you know, Rod Stewart later said that Ronnie Lane was the heart of the band. So they've they've kind of lost the their spiritual leader. And mm, although they didn't want to admit it at the time, sorry to interrupt. They uh, they didn't want to admit that at the time. That was the thing. They were sort of in denial. But it's obviously with retrospect that was the case. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 yet it's not Rod Stewart's solo career that's the precipitate cause of the breakup. It's it's Ronnie Wood being recruited away by the Rolling Stones. Well, yes, that what you say is true, but I think that it, even if Ronnie hadn't gone to the the faces, I think the band would have broken up anyway. Um, things were starting to wind down, certainly not in terms of of you know people were still coming to see the see the band, but they were mainly coming to see Rod. Um, and even Ronnie Wood knew that. And Ronnie's the sort of guy who, you know, he, he would play along with it for a while, but. When the, you know when he was when he met Keith Richards and Mick Jagger and he was being courted by the Stones as Rod calls it, you know it was lucky. I mean Ron, Ronnie's always had this uncanny ability to you know be in the right place at the right time. So and you know when the offer came in you know from Mick Jagger to say like can you tour for us but just you know we'd hate for the faces to break up you know. Um, Ronnie knew damn well, like, you know, he saw an opening and he went for it and, you know, good on him. But, um, and that was very much the end of the band. But I think, you know, hypothetically, even if that opportunity hadn't arisen, Mick Taylor would stay with the Stones or they got another guitar player or something. I don't think they, they would have lasted much longer because there was just too much, even on that last tour of America, there was so much, um, 
spite, you know, with, with the two camps, you know, they were divided. There was the Rod camp and then there was the Mac and, and Mac camp. And it, it, it just would, I don't think it would have could have held together much longer. And I think also the people around Rod were saying, look, you know, you can only take loyalty so far. You know, that it's it's obvious that, you know, people are coming to see you. You know, and he'd signed a new deal with Warner Brothers. He was recording the Atlantic Crossing album, which, of course, was massive. And they, even on that last Faces tour, they were doing tracks off it. So, you know, people were coming to see Rod do tracks off his albums. Um, and... Uh, the faces as much as it was a sort of an awful one and one for all that that mentality was coming apart and let's hear one last faces song this is a uh, ronnie lane song from the ulala album glad and sorry That's Glad and Sorry, uh, one of Ronnie Lane's classic, melancholy, poignant uh, songs from the Ulala La album. And, and the one thing that's fascinating to me about the faces and the aftermath of the band is the very different fates that the five main members had. Let's run through that real quickly. Obviously, Rod Stewart becomes a superstar, but something at the cost of his credibility. And Ronnie Wood runs off and joins the Stones, lives happily ever after. Kenny Jones ends up in The Who and, and is apparently very shrewd with his money because he ends up... Uh, you know, quite wealthy. Mac has more of a middle-class life as a session man touring with the Stones and others. And talk about the ups and downs of Ronnie Lane's solo life and career. Well, Ronnie was a romantic in a way. He was almost like a romantic sort of gypsy type vagabond character. And he, uh, he, he saw early on that, and I think it was from his experiences in the sixties where he discovered you know, Mayor Baba, the Indian mystic guru that uh, Pete Townsend followed, and uh, and just his experiences with, um, you know, sort of like uh, Sufism and, and things like that, that he saw the world differently. And, and even though, you know, he liked the attention and the fame and all that, it, it, the, the effect wore off, the novelty wore off pretty quickly. So... He'd come to the end of those sort of two or three big years of the faces where he actually had some money and he could see that the situation with Rod was never going to sort of have any easy resolvement. And I just think the meeting with Kate um, and, you know, them having their first child, I think he just sort of thought of like just turning his back on it and, um, uh, not not like a sort of a Sid Barrett thing, you know, with Pink Floyd, where he was the songwriter and the, the singer in the band, and then suddenly, you know, he was just a liability, you know, for personal reasons, and he and he left the, you know, he became the sort of like recluse. Ronnie, I think, it was different. He just wanted to try something different, a lot less, um, a lot less dictated by the rock business, because the rock business was huge by that point. He thought, well, I've made some money from this band. I'll um, instead of like you know buying another Ferrari or a big flash country mansion, I'll just sort of like go back to the land with uh, my lady and my my child and 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 write these songs and get a little band together and actually take it out on, but like very low key and very understated as part of a sort of a travelling troupe like a circus troupe. 
But unfortunately, Ronnie was sort of the idea in theory was fantastic, but in practice, it, it cost them dearly because, again, it was sort of uh, uh, that sort of legendary faces uh, um, disorganization. He hadn't really looked into it properly, and he had, you know, massive overheads and sort of the, the wealth that he accumulated was was sort of being eaten away keeping this thing on the road and it was sort of eating away at his morale and uh, it, it sort of in many ways you know while he still had a dedicated fan base from people who'd followed the faces and, and people who knew way back to the small faces days he didn't have a very big commercial profile he'd had a sort of a a, a hit single to start with with a song called How Come which was a hit in England but uh, he didn't really um he, he didn't have any sort of commercial. He didn't really want that. He wanted to be more regarded as sort of a cult artist, really, just making the records that he wanted to make. And that's why they're sort of highly regarded today. But unfortunately, he paid such a huge price financially. And then as it came to pass, his health as well, around about 1976, the first symptoms, he noticed the first symptoms of multiple sclerosis, and which his mother had suffered from. And unfortunately, you know, that was, it, it had a, 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 you know, a negative effect on his, um, well, his life in general. You know, he couldn't really record much anymore. And it was just the horrible de degenerative disease that um, ultimately, um, you know, claimed him. Claimed him in the late 90s. And, and uh, before the disease fully took hold, he did a, a duet album with Pete Townsend. And there's this pretty upsetting story in there about the two of them both pretty volatile characters and strong willed the album's great it's called rough mix but at one point they get into into a fight and ronnie says something that that sets off pete townsend and the and the who are these big brawlers you know mm. townsend's coming off a decade of being beaten up by roger daltrey and so he just stomps <laughs> poor little ronnie lane with his boots and and uh to me, that that's the story just sort of summed up Ronnie Lane. You know, this little guy with a big mouth who who starts fights he can't win. Well, Ronnie had the small man syndrome. I think they all did, really, like the, the guys in the small faces, with the possible exception of Kenny. But, uh, you know, they could be pushed so far and then they would react. And Ronnie, even though he was a very sweet guy, from people that knew him would say that he had a way of, you know, just winding people up, whether it was, in some cases, not deliberately, but he had a way of pushing people's buttons. And as you say, in that particular instance in the studio with Pete while they were recording the album, you know, Pete, by that point, they'd known each other for 10 years. So they, they knew, they, they know, knew each other's characters inside out. And, Ronnie was say uh, it was it was a personal matter, which Ronnie just kept going on and on and on about. And of course, the amount of brandy they were drinking at those sessions, you know, it was just like lighting a powder keg. And Pete, who, as you say, could be quite volatile, just snapped. And but he, he, Ronnie did that with a lot of people, and Ronnie could snap as well. Ronnie, Ronnie, for just sh little short guy. I mean, if you read in the book, there's instances where he's standing up to hotel managers with dogs, and you know, he's like, he, you know, nothing really phased him. Um, you know, he had a lot of front, as they say over here, um, and. Um, so, you know, like, even if you were to, Ronnie was also very stubborn as well. And he did, many people who sort of had his best interests at heart say or that they tried to advise him 
or at least steer him in the right direction. But Ronnie was very much on his own path, and you know he couldn't be sort of deviated from that. You know, even if it was taking him in the wrong direction. Um, and it's sad, really, because it's a sad, really, that it, 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 in many ways the, the small faces were just sort of an example of a band, another band I can think of, a bad finger, who sort of made some great music but just were victims of how the industry worked. And if you weren't savvy or you weren't lucky enough to sign the right deals and that, you you got burned for it and um, the consequences could be horrible. And it's sort of sad now that... Um, where the small faces are recognised and Ronnie Lane is recognised, you know, they're not around to see the, reap the benefits of that recognition and and, and the money that comes with it, you know. Yeah, and, and they, you know, after Ronnie Lane passed in the 90s and Steve Marriott around the same time, they spent quite a bit of time negotiating a, a faces reunion and even played some gigs without Rod with, with uh, Mick Huxle from Simply Red and, and Glenn Matlock of the Sex Pistols, who's, a huge advocate of the faces is a big, you know, acknowledge them as a huge influence on the sex pistols. They played some, some reunion gigs, but just as they were finally, you know, they finally get in the rock and roll hall of fame and they're supposedly about to negotiate. And then Mac drops dead right before the tour was supposed to happen. Yes. Um, I don't know if the tour was going to happen. They'd, they'd certainly talked about doing maybe more shows with a, um, I, I don't think Rod was, if I'm being honest, was totally committed to doing a faces tour. I think he might have perhaps done a get, you know, like a guest spot at the, you know, the Grammys or something like that, you know, just playing three or four songs and, and that would be it. I don't think a tour was ever really on the cards um, unless the money was just too stupid to turn down. But it, I, I just think that, you know, you've got to remember too that Rod had the um, cancer scare in I think it was in the early 2000s or something and, and his voice changed. I mean, so when you listen to a lot of those early Faces recordings, something like Stay With Me where he's singing at the top of his range, you know, that that song is played in open tuning. So like if for Rod wanting the, the, the you know, the, the tuning to be changed, the song falls apart. So, you know, the, the, for a 60, 70 year old Rod trying to sing the songs that he sang effortlessly when he was, you know, in his 20s, it, it's, it's a big, big ask of him, really. And, there's, you know, even when Mac was alive, there was still a lot of dissent between the, the two men. You know, there was, Mac always felt that Rod sold the band out and went to Las Vegas, etc. And, you know, it sort of betrayed what the band were about. And, you know, and so there was, I don't think there could ever have been like a big or a, lo a long lasting tour, maybe a, a sort of a, 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 like a rock and roll hall of fame type, you know, thanks very much. And we'll do a couple of songs. And that would be it, you know. Um, and, and this was uh, Andy Neal with uh, Had Me a Real Good Time, The Faces, Before, During, and After. Andy, thanks so much for sharing this epic tale with us. Thank you, Nate. Pleasure to be on the show. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Nate will be back next week with Phil Spector biographer Mick Brown. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Thank you.
me a real good time. The faces before, during, and after is published by Omnibus Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. Hey, it's Marcus in the Darkest. And Ray Coob here. The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is a podcast for the lover of rock and roll. Like many of the other Pantheon podcasts, we take a unique look at the entire rock and roll timeline in a non-traditional fashion. We look at events, we look at movements, moments, albums, tragedy, celebrations, and more. These are what make rock and roll rock and roll. And it's why the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is a juggernaut waiting for exploration and discussion. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.